Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millionaire Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we will go through some of the fundamental things to consider when buying a home. In the first part of the episode, before the break, we'll consider buying a home to live in. And after the break, we'll consider buying an investment property and some associated risks with it. Now, I have done an episode about buying a home a few years ago. It was actually the 11th episode that I ever did. So if you're interested, go back and listen to it. But we're going to be covering a lot of the same things in this episode. And of course, now we've got a vast audience compared to what I did have a few years ago. Let's get started. Now, if you want to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. Now, is buying a home worth it? What are the pros and cons? I think it's really important to have housing security. Buying a home to live in provides you that housing security. It's all fair and well to say just rent. But the problem with renting is you are at the mercy of your landlord. And if the lease expires and the landlord wants to move in or sell the house or modify it or renovate it, then you are at their mercy. And personally, I think buying a home is an emotional decision and is an important decision. And having security and housing, in my view, is immeasurable. Let's take a look at the pros of owning a home. It's an investment. Now, somewhat controversial, but the non-purists would have you believe that buying your own home to live in is an investment. But in my humble opinion, and I'm a purist, I don't think it is. But let's go with it for a split second here. Historically, house prices in Australia have risen. And in the last 25 years, it's rising around 7 to 8% per annum annually across most capital city markets. Sydney and Melbourne, of course, leading the way. And similarly, the unit prices have also been rising around 6% per annum over the last 25 years. Again, Melbourne and Sydney topping the market. The second thing about buying a home is it provides you with long-term security. When you live in your own home, the air smells better, the water tastes better, and everything about it is better than a rented home. You are living in your kingdom. You don't need to ask for permission to modify the home. You don't need to worry about six monthly house inspections and real estate agents. You can have pets if you want to, and there's no restrictions on the type of pet that you want to have, provided the council is okay with you having crocodiles. And you can do whatever you want to your garden if you have space. Now, I think the flexibility and pure emotional joy of living in your own home is not really measurable. Having long-term security for you and your family is really important, particularly if you have children. Constantly moving homes is not an option or a good option. Australia doesn't really have long-term leases for residential properties like in many other parts of the Europe, for example, 
where you can literally lease a home for over five or even 10 years. What about the cons of buying a home? What about the bad things? You're most likely hamstrung by a mortgage, which means you're kind of a slave to the lender. Having a mortgage over your head may mean you sleep a little less at night. Now, for me, I don't have to worry about paying a mortgage because I don't have one, especially when I have commitments like children or other family commitments. This also depends on your job security, depending on the type of work that you do. The second bad thing about owning a home is you need a really decent deposit. This is the biggest hurdle, the biggest challenge of buying a home that a lot of people face today. To save for a deposit of, you know, 5, 10 or even 20% to avoid lenders' mortgage insurance, for example, can be very, very tough. Number three is repairs and maintenance. I know I've had to do some repairs around the house, which is costly because I can't do anything myself, um, because, you know, it's a bit of a pain to do that. And everything costs money, particularly in these high cost, high inflationary times. And it's very difficult to get a tradesperson to even come out for an inspection or even for a quote. In fact, a lot of the times when I've had to have quotes, it's via video or via Facebook or even via photos and WhatsApp. Because people that give these quotes, it's not worth their time having to drive all the way to your house to have a look for repairs and then then quote you on the spot. They'd much rather do it online. Now, if you're a do-it-yourselfer, then, you know, the cost and maintenance and repairs, etc., is not a big deal. Now, the other thing about buying a home is there are some first home owner grants, federal and state, and there's also this thing called the first home super savers accounts. Now, these are beyond the scope of this episode, but I've detailed them in previous episodes if you're interested. Essentially, the first home buyers are an advantage because there are various federal and state and territory policies which help you save for your first home deposit. You need to check on the grant's website for more information, and it's different between each of the states and territories. The first home super saver scheme is also relatively good. Now, you can put in $15,000 into it per year, but of course, this counts towards the concessional cap of $27,500. And then in any given year, you can withdraw a max of $50,000 from your super for your first home. Now, if there's a couple, then it's $50,000 per super account, so max is $100,000. There are specific rules about this, so you've got to check with the relevant website about this scheme. Now, generally speaking, I'm not a great fan, although this scheme is pretty good, but I'm not a great fan of utilising super for purposes other than retirement, because that's not what super's designed to do. And really, if the government wants to help people, they shouldn't, you know, count the first home super saver account contributions as part of the concessional caps. Probably should be on top of the concessional caps, but that's just my personal view. Now, do you want to buy a home to live in or are you considering an investment? Now, we talked about buying a home to live in predominantly, but suppose you want to buy a home for an investment. That's a whole nother ballgame. In the second part of this episode after the break, we discuss some of the risks associated with buying an investment property. Of course, the pros is that you can build up your net worth, use leverage as a strategy. And I've discussed this strategy and the differences between leverage and margin in episode 49 in my past life as Devraga Personal Finance. If you're interested, you can go back and listen to that one. But coming back to buying a home to live in, I think there are seven things you need to consider. Let's go through them one by one. Step one, did you want to rebuild, renovate, or live in a home straight away? 
This is really, really important because it'll affect your budget directly and indirectly. Now, I'm a big fan of buying a dump in a good suburb, demolishing it and rebuilding a brand new home of your liking or dreams. I've done it before. Building, in my view, is fun and you kind of get what you want. It can be a challenging experience and it does take a bit of time. 2022 has shown that building is not certain, builders are not certain, and costs can dramatically rise when constructing a home. I usually would suggest setting aside around six months for plannings and drawings and design phases, and 12 months on top of that for the actual construction phase, depending on the type of home that you're building. Renovation, it can add up in terms of costs as well, but the most important thing here is to make sure you can actually renovate to your liking and do you need to compromise. And sometimes renovation costs can be comparable to building a new home. And also some homes, you can't change the exterior looks based on council regulations. So checking it out before buying a home is really important. In fact, a colleague of mine fell into this trap when he bought a home, demolished it and built a new home. And they had restrictions on the exteriors of the home in that particular suburb. They had a covenant. And I've talked about this in my episode when I talked about overlays and and restrictions um, of buying a home. And in some cases, you might wish to just buy and settle into the home, and that's completely fine. Again, if you wanted this in some suburbs, you will need to compromise on the land, the size of the building, the structure, the type of the building, and the facilities the home has. So knowing exactly what you want is really important. And sometimes this decision can make or break your long-term capital growth of the home you buy, But remembering buying a home to live in is an emotional decision, in my humble opinion, and it's not an investment because it's purely speculation. It doesn't produce an income during the time that you live in it. Step two is, what type of home do you want? Do you want an apartment, a townhouse, an independent home, a duplex? You've got to look at all the overlays and restrictions of that particular council. So you've decided to buy, whether you want to renovate, rebuild or live in, you will then need to decide on the type of home you want. What is your current needs? What is your future needs? Now, people with no children and have no plans to have children may prefer to live an inner city life, which is largely comprised of apartments or townhouses of duplexes. And people who have larger families or plan to have larger families may need bigger homes, larger land, which means moving outside of the city, maybe even in the regional towns or country towns or rural areas based on affordability and availability of homes with land. Again, this decision is based on your budget and your personal current and personal future requirements. Generally speaking, I'm a big fan of buying independent homes and not duplexes, townhouses or apartments because land is what is considered capital appreciating assets. Buildings on the whole depreciate. Call me old-fashioned, but generally this rule of thumb is good for those looking to sell their home as an investment. Of course, everything is negotiable. We bought a dump for our first home in a modest suburb in 2009 at what I thought was ridiculous prices back then, and never in my wildest imagination did we imagine things would appreciate so much in value in the way that they did, particularly during COVID and after. Step three is finance. This is a huge factor, and many people don't consider the cost associated with buying a home in addition to the actual cost of the home. Mortgage alone is just one factor. And generally speaking, to find a good mortgage deal, try and get a broker. Most people just tend to go through their bank, and that's fine as well, but make sure you negotiate. 
Simply by asking the question, you'd be surprised how much lenders can reduce their rates. I see this all the time in online forums. And it's probably worthwhile looking at what affects interest rates you get when you apply for a loan. What's the purpose of the loan? Is it owner-occupied or investment? Usually speaking, investment home loans have higher interest rates, and this is all to do with perception. Banks and lenders see investment properties as high risk when compared to owner-occupied. What about interest rates that are variable or fixed? Here's the deal. For the people who fixed their rates 12 months ago, you're laughing right now. But eventually, the gravy train will come to an end. Your fixed rate will eventually expire. And generally speaking, I don't think we can beat the lenders or the banks long term. It's not easy anyway to do that. So most of my properties are variable interest rates, with the exception of one, which is fixed. I just got lucky. Uh, But the problem with fixed loans I found is that they have severe restrictions on them. So it's not easy to wiggle your way out of them if need be. So paying extra, having an offset account, which is 100%, or even selling the property mid-cycle of the interest rate fixed loan. All of them have penalties and charges associated with it. Now, you can strategize and split your loan if you want to. It's much of a muchness, in my opinion. You can have variable and fixed portions of your home loan. Now, I've got a relatively high income and have a variable income, so I prefer to have a variable interest so I can plow more money into it. Now, whether you do principal or interest or interest only, I prefer my loans to BPI. This builds some ownership and equity into the home that I own. And if you went interest only for investment properties, that's fine as well. But the whole point is to take the principal component of those properties and then plow it into your non-deductible debt. If you're not doing this additional step, then you're losing money uh, if you're just going for the interest only investment loan. That's really critical. And the last thing is the debt that you have. Now, generally speaking, if you have more debt, you may have more negotiating power. Therefore, the banks and the lenders may lend you more money. This is a big bite of a grape versus a small bite out of a watermelon concept. For example, if you have $5 million in debt, then having a smaller interest rates may seem attractive because that's what the lenders want to give you because you have a lot of debt. But overall, the actual amount of interest that you pay is actually greater. And this is a small bite of a watermelon concept, which still means that massive profits for the lenders and the banks. So think carefully about debt and debt structuring. Let's use an example to highlight this concept in terms of the cost of buying a home. And I just want to highlight some of the additional costs that you need to consider. Amy is a dentist is looking to buy her first home and her budget is around a million dollars. Therefore, she needs the following to avoid LMI, largely speaking. She needs about $100,000 to $200,000 in deposit if she wants to go 10 to 20%. She needs fees for settlement, which can be a few hundred bucks. She needs conveyancing and lawyer fees, which is $1,000 and $2,000 roughly. She needs cleaning and any requirements to move in, some minor renovations, She needs money for the dreaded stamp duty, which can be added to the loan, of course, but it's a cost we need to factor in. It's not free. In this case, it'll be around $50,000, depending on which state. Victoria seems to have the highest stamp duty fees in Australia. She also needs some money for title transfer fees, usually a couple of hundred dollars, and that also varies between states. She'll need mortgage registration fees, which is another couple of hundred dollars, again, varies between lenders, banks, etc., She'll also have building inspection and pest inspection fees, which is around $500 to $1,000. Maybe I'm being a little bit conservative here, sometimes a little bit more, depending on the property. 
You should get a report at the very least, and disaster can strike otherwise. And this is part of the due diligence process for the buyer. The moving charges factor that in again. This is usually after settlement, so we have some time for this. Connection of utilities and charges. Now, that's for any home that you move into, rental or, you know, home that you buy or for investments, you know, gas, electricity, broadband. Um, they're not free, unfortunately. So I guess what I'm trying to highlight is, is there a rule of thumb for all of the expenses when buying a home in addition to the deposit? So my rule of thumb, I think, is around 8 to 11%, and that includes stamp duty of the home price. So if Amy were to buy a million dollar property, she probably needs to factor in around $80,000 on top of the deposit as well. Look, it's probably a little bit of an overestimate, but I think it's good to be prepared rather than not. Some other cost Amy may wish to consider is home and contents insurance. And usually when renting, you don't need that building insurance, but when certainly buying, you need the building insurance. And when you're renting, of course, you need the contents insurance. Step four is location, proximity to amenities. Buying a home in a good suburb with low noise levels, less industrial sites, and low construction levels is the ultimate dream for everyone. But it all costs money, and that's the most important thing. Think about what you need for yourself and your family. Think about your future needs. Um, So schools and school zones are massive in Melbourne, and I'm sure it is in Sydney and other cities as well. Uh, May not be a major issue in regional areas. Train stations, you know, if you live next to one, um, can be quite noisy. If you're living close to one where you can actually walk to it, that's actually an added advantage. Tram lines is the other thing. Um, your ability to access freeways and motorways easily, that's really important. Thoroughfares um, is the particular street they're going to be looking at a house. Is that a thoroughfare? Basically, traffic can be a big deal, particularly if you live around school zones. Any planned developments? You know, if you buy a home next door neighbour, is he going to demolish it and build an apartment or block of units or block of flats? That might affect your property value. University access. So depending on your needs for children, if they're going to go to university, you know, what's the access to that? Public transport, car access, whatever it is. And of course, local amenities like shops. So is there a close by shop? Uh, Coles, Woolies, Aldi, um, shopping centres, um, they all make a big difference. Again, you may not want to buy a home right next to a shopping centre because it just becomes a traffic nightmare, but you may want to buy something you know, within five minutes of a drive, which is a lot easier for you to live your life if you do own a home in those areas. Now, here's a pro tip. When you inspect a home, I want you to notice if all of the windows and doors are closed during the inspection. A lot of the doors are often left open, which is a good thing. Now, When that happens, when they actually close everything, though, is that a strategy to reduce the impact of outdoor noise during inspections? A lot of the estate agents listening in may agree or disagree with that. Maybe open some of those doors and windows and hang around to get a feel for what it really feels like, particularly if the house is anywhere near a train station or any public sort of tram lines, etc. Because, you know, outdoor noises can be a big thing. Freeways is the other one. Step five is the actual building. Now, getting a building and pest inspection, I think, is really important when you're really serious about buying a home. The thing is, though, homes these days are solid, 
um, and they're, you know, sold really, really quickly. So I understand that sometimes you may not be able to get one done in time. In fact, there's a lot of unconditional offers out there for properties, particularly for those who don't really care about the house because they want to demolish it anyway. Of course, the other factor is each time you get a building and pest inspection done, you need to pay for it. So everything again costs money. It all adds up. So I wouldn't recommend getting it done until and unless you're very serious about your purchase of that particular property. And you should get it done for investment properties too, because you know you don't want to be buying something that's got significant termite damage. In fact, um, I've got a colleague that did exactly that, bought an old weatherboard home. And unfortunately, um, during renovations, they found that there's significant termite damage to the stumps. So now they're going to have to spend thousands of dollars to treat that and restump and do all that again. So, you know, you've got to be a little bit diligent about this. But of course, every time you get a building and pest inspection, it costs money. Now, before you organize one, though, you may wish to do the following. You want to attend the inspections multiple times. You may want to take a friend or family member to take the emotion out of it. I know I do. I usually take a family member, uh, not my immediate family member, but you know, an extended family member to come and have a look at it. Uh, we try and inspect it at various times. We drive past it morning, afternoon and night, weekends and weekdays. Obviously, look for obvious cracks, etc. cetera. Um, Google Maps, I find that as a great resource. Um, I actually do a virtual street view to see if there's anything untoward that I might have missed on the real inspection. Because again, when you're inspecting properties, it's an emotional decision. And sometimes you see what you want to see. You may not see um, things and you may actually miss them. So taking yourself away from that property and inspecting it virtually, I think, is fantastic. I also do this when I go on holidays or when I'm planning for holidays. I'll do a little virtual walk around of the place that I'm staying in to see whether there's amenities, you know, near the hotel or the resort, Um, you know, where are the attractions? And it gives you a real sense of the actual place even before you actually visit it live. Now, a building and pest inspection report should have the basic fundamentals and the following inspections on it. Number one, plumbing. Number two is doors and windows and their condition. Number three is roofing. Number four is underfloor crawl spaces. Number five is in-roof crawl spaces. Number six is structural support beams and their integrity. Number uh, six is water drainage. Number seven is asbestos presence or not. Any demolition work for asbestos properties is much more difficult due to the strict regulations, the demolition, um, the way they do it to prevent um, significant dust exposure, and also how they dispose of it. In fact, my understanding is if you're demolishing an asbestos property, there has to be warning signs surrounding the property for a few metres. So that's really, really difficult if it is asbestos. And there's a lot of property, old property out there that still have asbestos in their walls. They've got to talk about fencing and retaining walls, and of course, any damage from pests such as termites, etc. Step six, is the home actually good for your purpose? For example, what facilities it has, the natural light, the noise levels, the school zones, etc. Is the house actually what you need or want? Now, facilities which may be important for the home, you know, some examples might be double lock-up garage, separate butler's pantry. It's really common now if you're building a home to have a second kitchen or a butler's pantry because, you know, there are people out there who have special meal requirements. Um, There are some cultures out there, particularly in the subcontinental and Asian culture, they do like to have separate kitchens to prepare their meals because someone might be a vegetarian and they don't want to have their food prepared in the same kitchen 
um, as other people in the household that may be eating fish or meat or other products. So it's actually very, very common. Perhaps a library with one of those ladders that you see, you can sort of roll around and you know, hunt for your books. Shout out to the metabolic group, uh, you know who you are. Maybe a refrigerated air conditioning system versus an evaporative cooling system or ducted heating. Um, I know that heating in Melbourne is often standard with a lot of the homes, but um, refrigerated cooling isn't. Um, evaporative cooling is sometimes standard, particularly when you're building, but refrigerated cooling is an added expense because, you know, people assume that Melbourne is much colder than the rest of Australia, but we do, and I live in Melbourne, we do get some really warm summers here as well. Is there property internet access? Now, this is surprisingly a thing. Now, some suburbs, even in the outskirts of Melbourne or rural areas, have very poor internet access and have to rely on satellite internet, particularly in country Victoria. Adequate natural light. Is it north-facing? How's it going to affect your entertainment plans for the new homes, etc.? Now, this is just an extremely personal thing. So you need to figure out what you want. Um, so buying a home is an extremely personal uh, topic, an extremely personal decision. I'll tell you right now, whether building or buying, you will start with a list of things and it will blow out. Um, in our recent costings, in my own experience for, a, you know, think about building another home, which we've parked aside at the moment because we've had a list of things that we wanted and then the budget simply just blew out. Uh, this was in the early part of 2022 when we'd purchased um, you know, a decent amount of land in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And we went to the builder um, who introduced us to a number of additional things we could incorporate. I mean, I vividly remember the builder saying, well, you know, you're thinking about a double garage, lock-up garage. Hey, why don't you think about a four-car garage or maybe an underground garage? Because you can have a lot more options in terms of cars. I mean, we only got two cars, but then we sort of thought about it. Oh, maybe, you know, when the kids grow up, they might have cars and maybe I want to have a second nice car and maybe we need an underground garage and that adds another couple of hundred thousand to the budget for building a home. Now, as disciplined as we are, as I am, and I'm a financial nerd, right? We are not immune to getting completely sucked into the whole building process. So we sort of went through this process and went, whoa, this, the cost of building, um, was just extraordinary based on what we thought we needed and what we could potentially have. So we ended up delaying the building because, of course, then, um, you know, after the Ukraine war, inflationary pressures um, in 2022 and builders just collapsing left, right and centre, we got cold feet, we got nervous. So we thought, hey, we're going to postpone this by another 10 months and see what happens. And now that the property market is coming down, the appetite for building has gone down a little bit. I'm recording this episode in the early parts of January of 2023. We may revisit building again in 2023, depending on the cost. We're not in a rush. So again, you know, you've got to have exactly what you want to do with the money that you're going to spend, particularly when buying a home or particularly when you're building a home. Now, that's about it for buying a home in terms of when you live in it. Even if buying an investment property, I think most of these principles, the seven steps are very, very relevant. After the break, we'll take a quick look at some of the things to consider when buying an investment property, mainly from a risk perspective. So I'm not going to go through all the mortgages and the pest and building inspections because that kind of is standard for buying any property, whether you want to live in it or not. But I want you to understand some of the risks associated with buying an investment property because I think there's several risks that everyone needs to understand. Be right back. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Let's go on and learn a bit about investment properties now that there's way more gurus in this field than me. I'm certainly not a property person. Um, I'm not an investment property expert or anything like that. So I thought, you know, rather than going into, you know, the the whole investment property leverage and all that sort of stuff, I thought I'd discuss some of the pitfalls of investment properties. With rising inflationary pressures and interest rates that we've had in 2022, you need to be really careful when utilising leverage for property investing. But done the right way, it can certainly be very, very fruitful. First of all, what are some of the positives of investing in uh, property or investment property, right? Number one is low volatility. Property is relatively stable in Australia. I know that in 2022, you know, prices have gone down nationally, except in South Australia, uh, it's gone up. And except in regional South Australia, it's gone up significantly. But overall, Australia has lack of usable land and we have a rising population, which makes it very attractive uh, for investing into the property market over the long term. And over the past 30 to 40 years, property has matched, if not beaten, the stock market locally when it comes to annualised returns. And I've done a detailed comparison in episode 235. I discussed the numbers. So if you're interested, uh, you might want to go back and listen to that. If you're the sort of person who likes low volatility, property is a great option. The other thing about property is there isn't a sticker symbol outside your property, which changes the value of your property minute by minute, like there is in the stock market, which makes it less desirable to trade. And the trading cost of property is significantly higher. So therefore, as a result, you know, you don't have significant liquidity in the property market as you do with the stock market. So overall, that reduces your volatility. That's number one. Number two is passive income. Now, I think this is not really true uh, because rental income is not passive. You still need to do things actively to keep the tenants happy. So you still need to do a little bit of work, even if you have a real estate agent. So technically, I don't think this is a huge positive, but essentially 
Owning a property means you can rent it out and also generate some cash flow. And that cash flow can be positive if your income exceeds the outgoings on the property. In my view, though, outgoings is not just mortgage repayments. It includes the cost of owning the property, like maintenance, uh, real estate fees, council rates, strata fees, etc. I think it's really important that people understand when they talk about a positively geared property, a lot of people say, oh, the interest on the investment property mortgage is this, the tenant is paying this amount of rent, and if the rent exceeds the interest, therefore it's a positively geared property. I don't really buy that theory. Um, I think you need to take into account all the other outgoings as well, and then make sure that overall in the 12-month period, you are totally positively geared. And that includes maintenance expenses, real estate expenses, um, council rates, et cetera, et cetera. Number three is the tax benefits. Again, this is blown way out of proportion, but I'm going to put it into the positivity area for investment properties. But technically, if you invest in property, because it's used to generate an income, it allows for depreciation and tax deductions on the cost of ownership. And this includes interest-free payments and other outgoings on the property like council rates and any costs associated with maintenance. And the depreciating bit is a bit interesting because basically the building of the property doesn't appreciate but the land, if you have any, does. And you can use that depreciation and plot it out on a schedule to claim it against your income. And this is usually done by specialist services who plot out the depreciation schedules. But never buy property, never buy property purely for the purposes of tax deduction. It's an absolute disastrous way of thinking and it's a disaster in the making. Always buy an investment based on its investment merit. That includes property, bonds or stock market, whatever it is, and don't do it solely due to the tax advantages. The thought of I make a lot of money and paying too much tax, therefore I need to buy something to reduce my taxable income is a red flag thought process. And this is how a lot of people, including healthcare workers, do really stupid stuff like this all the time. So let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a dental assistant and her husband, Rob, is a nurse, and together they make around $200,000 in income per year. They're on a higher tax bracket than usual, and they think buying an investment property is a good idea. Unfortunately, they buy an apartment. The depreciation, the tax deductions prove really good. But 10 years later, they've noted apartment values have stagnated, and they can't sell the apartment, and there's been zero appreciation of the apartment market. This is in Melbourne. It's actually a true story. Meanwhile, Amy's sister, Michelle, is a radiographer. She's chosen to buy a home with some land associated with it. It's in a regional town, and she got it relatively cheap. She could not afford to buy in Melbourne at the time, and after 10 years and COVID and inflation, blah, 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 the property market has doubled in value and skyrocketed, and her property is now worth double what she paid for it. Michelle didn't buy the property because she was wanting to reduce her tax. Her primary reason for buying the property was that it was she wanted to buy along a growth corridor in Victoria in the regional market where she can afford it and the rental income was great. That is the rental yield was great as well. So it's a great example of two people, both sisters, both buying property. One bought it purely for the tax advantages. The other one bought it because they wanted to buy a property as a good investment. Number four, tangibility. Now, there's something really to be said about this. Property is something you can touch, you can feel, even smell. It's tangible. It has a real life feel to it. Stocks don't do that. So when I go shopping at Coles, I don't get the same sensation that I own a piece of coals like I do when I drive past my investment properties. The psychological element is often underplayed, but I think it's really important. 
Number five is using equity. The advantage of property is as the property price rises, you can build equity and use that equity to borrow for another property and keep repeating the process. This is how a lot of people became really wealthy in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, and they've just ridden the property wave of uh, those eras um, where the property prices have been continuously rising. But I think it's much more difficult to do that now than 20 years ago. But technically, it's possible. It all depends on where you buy and how much you commit and what you leverage and what equity you can build. Now, there has to be some cons associated with investment property ownership. So let's get into those. Those are the top five pros, I think. But we do have some bad things about it. And I've broken this whole thing down based on risk. What are the risks of investment property ownership? Number one, you got to manage your risk. There are multiple risks associated with investing property, and the first one is market risk. This means with any investment, you are at risk of what the overall market does. Now, I'm not saying that property market is you know, any different to the stock market. Of course, market risk also applies to the stock market. This is with any investments. And the good thing about property, though, is well, it's vulnerable to other economic factors like interest rate rises or recessions. There are markets within markets. And recently, you know, there was a vascular surgeon, for example, who bought a $21 million home in Sydney. So some markets just do well, regardless of what happens, even though the overall Sydney market has dropped by about 8 to 15%. Other markets, though, don't do as well. So if you analyse the individual markets and even suburbs within those markets, you could strike it rich with property. And some things you can do to minimise market risks are focusing on various locations, various markets, diversification, focusing on various styles of properties, apartments, townhouses, individual homes, period homes, heritage listed homes, etc. Use a buyer's agent to buy it below market price. This is possible if the buying's market is not as hot as it was earlier in 2021 or 2022. So that's market risk. Number two is interest rate risk. We've all found out in 2022 that interest rates don't remain the same all the time. New home owners over the past 10 years have been fortunate to be dealing with low interest rate environments. So if you're at a variable rate, you may have realised all of a sudden we are at about 25 to 3% above where we were just a few months ago. And one way to do this is to fix your rate, albeit at a higher rate, but it provides you with significant stability and security of repayments. Of course, to avoid interest rate risk is to don't overcommit with your property purchase. Easier said than done because of the emotional attachment that we all have to property. Number three is liquidity. This is something a lot of people don't realise, but it's a real problem with property. You can't just sell part of your property like you can with stock portfolios. You can sell half of your stock portfolio if you wanted to. And also it takes at least two to three months to finally sell a property depending on the settlement terms. The velocity of money when it comes to property and the frequency in which property changes hands is far less than any other forms of investment. So if you need the money quickly, you can sell your stock market today and have the money in your bank account in three days. This is not the case with property. So when you invest in property, you kind of need to have good cash flow situation. Otherwise, you may end up in trouble. Number four is personal risk. Now, this factors with the liquidity risk. When you have a personal situation, which is drastic, you can't get rid of the property quickly enough. Sometimes job losses, divorce, you have instant ramifications in terms of affordability and meeting your mortgage requirements. To mitigate this, 
don't overcommit, and perhaps concentrate on positive cash flow properties. Most of all, listen to my life series, which I've done, where I talk about in depth about getting your income protection, TPD, trauma, life insurance sorted, because you need that level of protection if you're going down the path of leverage and property investment, because you only need one health issue to completely derail your entire investment journey. Number five is tenant risk. Now, I've had a really bad experience. In 2020, I didn't have a great experience with one of my tenants who didn't pay rent. Uh, I had uh, two properties, one of which the rent genuinely had lost their jobs. Uh, There was an eviction moratorium uh, due to COVID, and I didn't receive rent for around 18 months. Now, I was lucky enough to be able to afford this for that particular property where the tenant had genuinely uh, you know, lost their job and it was a real tricky time. So I just waived it. Um, then I had another property, which unfortunately the tenant kind of ripped me off. They told the agent they lost their job. And of course we did a 60% rent reduction. Um, then I found out months later, indeed they had not lost their job and that they simply moved their job. And this created a problem because it was very little way for me to prove this because I don't have access to their financial statements, they told the agent, um, you know, they've lost their job and they've moved their job or whatever it is. And uh, the agent then became a little bit suspicious because when they did inspections or drove past, they found a brand new VW Golf sitting in the driveway, which, um, you know, sat there uh, days in, days out. So it's not as if they had visitors. So, but the only thing is I couldn't do anything about it. VCAT hearings were taking ages back in the day. Um, So eventually did go to VCAT hearing and they ordered the tenant to repay the bills uh, and the lost rent. This was in, you know, between 2020 and 2021. So it took months and months and months. Uh, By that time, it was around 14 months down the track where for my property too, I didn't receive any rent. And by that time, you know, again, the tenant had been living rent free. What really upset me was, I don't really mind if people don't pay rent. That's not the problem if they're genuine about it. But what really upset me was that taking me for a ride. Um, that taking complete advantage of the situation because of the eviction moratorium, because of COVID. You know, they'd worked it all out. And this was always going to be the risk when the government introduces these things. But overall, most people, you know, played by the rules. Uh, the rules and regulations had to be followed. And luckily, for me, again, I could afford to take the hit. Um, But the very principle of ripping people off during times of need just really pissed me off, to be honest. And of course, the other thing is VCAT hearings and their outcomes are not enforceable. So VCAT ruled in my favour and basically said, sorry, you need to pay Dev his dues. But they just simply vacated. They disconnected their phone. They changed their address. They left the home. And, you know, I got debt collection agencies involved because by this time I was fuming. But of course, there's no way for me to recoup those costs, um, those losses, because there's no trackability of these tenants who basically just fled. Now, luckily for me, I had landlord insurance and uh, rental protection insurance, which was useful. But, you know, left a really bad taste in my mouth about investment properties as a whole. So, I'm sure a lot of listeners, unfortunately, were possibly in a similar situation. And if that tenant's listening, I just want them to know what they did was beyond par. And I just hope they don't do it again. My rant over. So that's tenant risk. The sixth thing is property risk. Now, just before the break, we discussed some of the property factors which one should consider when buying a home to live in. 
But it doesn't end there because it's the same principles for buying an investment property too. That was buying a home to live in versus investment properties. I mean, a building and pest inspection has to be done both of them. And if you've got termite problems or if you've got pest problems in either of those properties, investment or living, you've got a problem. Um, So the last thing you want to do is to buy a property with several building issues. So you've always got that property risk, you know, do that due diligence. Otherwise, you end up being in significant trouble. Number seven is vacancy risk. Now, just because you have an investment property doesn't mean it'll always be rented out. So if you're factoring the rental income for application of the home loan for the said investment property, then it's a risk in itself. Now, when I've bought my investment properties, I've always assumed there is zero rent. That way, I've enough buffer to pay the mortgage, even if the rent is nothing. That philosophy came in handy in 2020 when my tenants weren't able to pay me rent. Um, So, you know, I was able to afford the mortgage for up, up to 18 months without any rental payments. Now, you can mitigate this risk by buying simply good properties in good locations with likely good tenants which is easier said than done. And remember, the locality desire will change over time for these tenants. So those are your seven risks when buying investment properties. And look, I'm not really that keen to buy any more investment properties. I've learned my lesson, but I know a lot of listeners are, and it's completely fine. If, if that's what floats your boat, that's completely fine. That's about it for this episode. Now, buying a home, there are so many factors to decide on. What is my take? Generally speaking, I don't like property investing because I feel for me, it's a bit of a pain in the ass. I much prefer the stock market, the index fund strategy, which is more passive. It's easy. It's a lower cost for me. And I accept the volatility associated with it and take advantage uh, of the volatility. And my taking advantage of the volatility is I don't change my investment strategy just because the market goes up and down. The biggest thing I do like about property is the emotional attachment and the physical nature of the property. The tangibility is a big factor and it really does give you a warm feeling, uh, you know, seeing your property in real life, living in your own home rather than having to live in a rented property. So hopefully this sort of clarifies some of the things that you may want to wish to look upon when buying a property to live in compared to buying a property to invest in. Thanks for listening. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. And on that note, here's one from Raya PC, who wrote, excellent, thanks for the great podcast, clear, concise, actionable personal finance resource covering a broad range of topics. One of the best in this space, particularly for an Australian audience, easy to listen to. The advice is accurate and useful for all professionals and individuals interesting uh, or interested, I should say, in optimizing their personal finance. And it's not just for healthcare workers. Thanks very much for the feedback. And I agree, Rye PC. You know, I used to call this podcast My Millennial Money Medical, but you know, it's changed. It's My Millennial Money Professional for this exact reason, because Anyone can listen to this. The principles of money and the principles of saving and budgeting and investing and debt are exactly the same, no matter what profession you are. So it's pretty much for any profession. And I do have significant proportions now of non-healthcare workers. I mean, the majority are healthcare workers, but significant proportion uh, of non-healthcare workers tuning in as well. Now, the more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these podcasts. So please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millennium Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe.
We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.